Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. Several weeks ago, I began a sermon by saying that life is not a beach. Life is a battle. I was speaking on Psalm 20, and I concluded that that passage was about a battle that David was about to go into, and the people were praying for him. The conclusion, if you look at that psalm carefully, is that David is saying that we should get others to pray for us, and when the battle is won, we should acknowledge that it was the Lord who gave us the victory. And then I suggested that we all have battles, right? Right. From the minute you wake up, you battle about getting out of bed. And then all through the day, until you get back in bed, you battle. And then you battle about going to bed. And that is only the beginning. Children battle unfair parents. We battle a disagreeable mate, an angry customer, a sexual temptation, a financial pressure, illness, bereavement. And that is only to mention a few. So what we should do is do what Psalm 20 told us to do. Pray, but get others to pray as well. And then we need to, after the battle, do something. What's that? Well, it's interesting that Psalm 20 and Psalm 21 apparently are there together for a reason. Many have studied these psalms and come to the conclusion that Psalm 20 is telling us what happened before the battle, and Psalm 21 is telling us what happened after the battle. Or to say the same thing another way, Psalm 20 is the prayer before the battle, and Psalm 21 is praise after the battle. So what I want us to do today is uh, look at what we should do after the battle. And obviously that includes praise, but there's an interesting little wrinkle to this that I have discovered as I've looked at Psalm 21 that I want to share with you. But let me first ask this. Had any battles lately? I'm going to ask that same thing another way. Are you breathing? Same thing, right? And I'm asking you this, have you had any victories in some of those battles? Have you? All right, I, wanna, I want you to think about one or two of those victories. That's very critical to understanding what's going on in this passage of Scripture. So if you can uh, conjure up in your imagination, in your mind, some victory, some battle you've won in the last, oh, give it a year, uh, that'll be very helpful in us understanding this passage. All right? 
With that in mind, look at Psalm 21. Psalm 21, verse 1. The king shall have joy in your presence, O Lord, and in your salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire, and you've not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you met him with the blessings of goodness and set a crown of pure gold on his head. He asked life from you, and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you have placed upon him. For you have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad in your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. Through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath. The fire shall devour them. Their offspring shall destroy, be, shall destroy from the earth. You shall destroy from the earth. And their descendants from among the sons of men. For they intended evil against you. They devised a plot which they are not able to perform. Therefore, you will make them turn their back. You will make ready your arrows on your string toward their faces. Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. You, we will sing and praise your power. Now, this passage just sort of naturally peels into two parts. In the first seven verses, David is talking. Then, all of a sudden, in verse 8, the people are talking. That is evident by the fact that in verse 8, he says, your hand will find your enemies. So all of a sudden, the people are responding to what David has said. And that goes down through 12, and maybe even verse 13. Some think verse 13 is a third division of the passage, but it is clearly included in the people's response. So I want us to walk through this and see how David responded after his battle. He says in verse 1, The king shall have joy in your presence, O Lord. He says, the king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and your salvation shall greatly, uh, he shall greatly rejoice. So David is saying, uh, I won. He won the battle. This battle is won. So the result is, he says, I'm going to have joy in your strength. Now, back in Psalm 20, verse 7, it says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. So what he's saying in verse 1 is, I didn't trust in chariots. I didn't trust in horses. I trusted in you, which he says very plainly in verse 7. But at this point, he has trusted in the Lord, 
And as a result, he has won the victory, but he didn't claim it was because of his ingenuity or his wisdom or his military strategy. He says, it's because of your strength. So I'm going to rejoice in your strength. I saw you work in that situation, and I'm going to have joy in your strength. And your salvation, I will greatly rejoice, is the idea. Now, you've heard me say this before, if you've been listening to me for any period of time, but I need to review it. The word salvation in the Bible is a little tricky. When most Christians hear the word salvation, they automatically think of the forgiveness of sin. And that's involved in some cases, but not always. The word salvation in the Old Testament and in the New Testament simply means deliverance. Sometimes it is physical, and sometimes it is spiritual. Now, in the Psalms, when you see the word salvation, it is almost always physical, as it is here. So David is saying, I'm going to have joy in your strength, and I'm going to greatly rejoice in the deliverance you've given me from the battle I just fought. So that's the point of verse 1. But before I go on, let me say a word about spiritual salvation. That even gets a little tricky. The first trick, so to speak, tricky thing, is that Sometimes it's physical and sometimes it's spiritual. Well, even the fact that it's sometimes spiritual gets tricky. For example, there is a salvation that we have, uh, past tense. There is a salvation that we are gaining now. And there is a salvation we will experience when the Lord comes back. That theologians like to describe that as salvation from the penalty of sin I have been saved. There is salvation from the power of sin. I am being saved. And there is going to be salvation or deliverance from the very presence of sin. That is, when we meet the Lord and when he gives us a resurrected body. So, the little word salvation needs to be carefully paid attention to When you're reading the Bible, it is either physical or spiritual. And even when it's spiritual, it can be one of several different things. In this passage, as I say, it is referring to a victory in battle. He has been delivered from his enemies, as is very clear as you read the rest of the passage. But what he's doing is he's praising God for his strength and for the joy that he has in the victory one. Then he says in verse two, you have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Now, if you'll recall, back in chapter 20, verse four, it says, may he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. Now, David says, you did that. You gave me my heart's desire. Now, what was his desire? I think it could be tempting, I think some have done this, to come to this verse, 
then say, well, the Lord will do whatever I desire and claim that, well, if you have a desire, the Lord will fulfill it. Be careful. Uh, sometimes our desires aren't the will of God. And that's, he's not saying in this verse, just because you have a desire, you will get it. Read the verse carefully. Look at verse 2. You have given him his heart's desire and not withheld the request of his lips. Now remember, back in chapter 20, verse 4, may he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. And his purpose was in line with the will of God. At any rate, at this point, David is praising God for answered prayer. He prayed that he would have victory in this battle, and the Lord gave it. So he is praising God for the victory that he craved and the success for which he prayed. Then he says in verse 3, for, pause, what have I taught you about the word for at the beginning of a sentence? You do remember, right? He's about to explain what he just said in the previous verse. That's true in the New Testament, and lo and behold, it's true in the Old Testament. He says, For you met him with the blessings of goodness and set a crown of pure gold on his head. So his heart's desire was that God would bless him with goodness, with benefits. In this case, victory in this battle. And he says, You gave him his heart's desire, you did not withhold him the, the request of his lips because, I mean to explain, he met, you met him with the blessings of goodness and set a crown of pure gold on his head. Now we got a little itty-bitty problem. What is the crown of gold? And as you can imagine, commentators go crazy at this point trying to figure that out. One explanation is, that it's the crown that was put on David's head when he became king, or uh, something like a fresh version of that now that he's had this victory. A second opinion is that it's the crown of the king he conquered. That is, it was a practice in ancient times that if one king conquered another, he would take the crown off that conquered king's head, and it would be put on his own head. As a matter of fact, that ancient practice is referred to in 2 Samuel 12.30, which says, after David won a victory, then he took the king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones, and it was set on David's head. Also, he brought out the spoils of the city in great abundance. So some commentators point to that verse and say, wow, the crown that he's talking about in Psalm 21 is the crown of the king that he conquered. And it's simply saying that the Lord gave David victory. That's the point of the crown on his head. There is a third interpretation. Third interpretation 
is the crown is not literal, it's figurative. And if that's the case, he's saying that God crowned him with honor and glory and dignity. Now, which one is it? Well, some say it's clearly the crown of that king he conquered, and 2 Samuel 12, 30 proves that. Those who say it's figurative say, look at the first part of the verse, because this is a parallelism in Hebrew, and he's saying in verse 3, for you met him with blessing and goodness, you set a crown of pure gold on his head, and the crown of pure gold is the blessing of goodness. It's figurative. It's God has crowned him with goodness. Now, which is it? Here we go. My favorite answer. I am not sure. I have tried to figure it out, and I'm not sure I have. Uh, I think I would lean toward the second and the third, perhaps, as a combination. Uh, I think maybe there is an allusion to the fact that he got the crown from the conquered king's head. But beyond that, he's praising God for the victory that he has won and the honor and the glory he gets from that victory. So maybe there is a little bit of both here. All right? That's, he praises God then for joy. He praises God for answered prayer and for giving him a crown of honor. Look at the next verse. He says in verse 4, He asked life for you, and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. Well, obviously, as David was going into battle, he prayed for life. He prayed that he would survive this battle. And so he says, the battle is over, and the Lord has given me life. Now, that's the easy part. The tough part is the latter part of the verse. It says, wow, length of days forever and ever. Oh, wow. What do you mean he gave you length of days forever? What's that about? Well, it is uh, one possibility is that they normally prayed that the king would live forever. Know how Englishmen pray, long live the king? We don't have a king, and very few people would want to pray, long live the president. Not just this one, anyone. But uh, we usually pray, long live the king, right? Well, in the ancient world, it was not unusual for them to pray that the king would live forever. And that's in the Bible. Matter of fact, uh, you might want to look at 1 Kings one thirty-one, where we are told that um, then Bathsheba bowed with her face toward the earth and paid homage to the king and said, let my Lord King David live forever. So, Psalm 21 could be referring to David. I don't doubt that it does. But let me stretch your brain a little bit. Do you read your Bible? 
Do you read the Psalms? I think I put them to sleep already. You're supposed to shake your head. Do you read the Psalms? Oh, maybe that's why you didn't shake your head. You don't read the Psalms. All right. All right. Um, I, need to, I need to explore something for just a second. Um, the Psalms are poetry. And they're always, uh, not 100% of the time, virtually always, talking about some situation that the author is in. And they almost always end with praise. Now that's the Psalms, right? That's all that's true. But there's a little characteristic about the Psalms that the ordinary reader doesn't know and skips over. And that is this. That the Psalms are prophecy. You ever heard anybody say that? The Psalms contain prophecy. Now, David is writing about himself, and at least half of these. The other half are written by somebody else. And sometimes he just moves very subtly from himself to somebody else. And that somebody else is the Messiah. For example, look at the next chapter. And look at verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, who is talking? Well, it's written by David. Uh, matter of fact, the prescription, the, the superscription says, a psalm of David. So David is saying, I feel forsaken by God in that psalm. And yet, on the cross, Christ cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So there's a sense in what happened to David happened to the Messiah. And there are other passages in the Psalms where it's just happened to the Messiah and it didn't happen to David. Psalm 16 is an example where it says that his soul would not see corruption in the grave. That happened to David, but that's clearly a reference to the resurrection of Christ according to the apostles in the book of Acts. And it didn't happen to Christ. So I just want you to know that when you're reading the Psalms, there are times when the psalmist is talking about himself and it applies to the Messiah, and there are times when he's talking about the Messiah, and they are prophetic. There is prophecy in the Psalms. Now, that brings us back to this verse, may you live forever. So they know that David is not going to live forever. They know that. But God promised David uh, an offspring that would sit on the throne forever. And so this is an allusion to the fact that the son of David is going to live forever. And of course, that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. At any rate, in the context of this psalm, the basic thing he is doing is praising God for life. He survived the battle. Boy, isn't that the truth? Sometimes you have a battle, and when you get out, the best you can say is, at least I survived and I'm still breathing. Did you ever have a battle like that? Well, there's much more that David thanks the Lord for, but he thanks the Lord, I at least survived the battle. So, I got scars to prove it, but I survived. That's what he's praising God for. There is more. Look at verse 5. 
His glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you have placed upon him. So again, he's praising God. By the way, he's speaking in the third person at this point. But his glory is great in your deliverance, your salvation. You've given honor and majesty. You've placed that upon him, which might argue that the honor and majesty is that crown mentioned earlier in the passage, verse 3. Then he says, For you have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad in your presence. So all that's going on in these verses so far is David, speaking in the third person, is saying, God has blessed me. And he is praising God for the blessings. So you could actually go through these six verses and just list the blessings. He gave him strength and joy, answered prayer, goodness, a crown, life, deliverance, honor, majesty, blessing, and gladness. And he just praises the Lord. One more thing in this section. Look at verse 7. Four. Stop. What does four mean? I'm about to explain to you what I just said. This is very important. For the king trust in the Lord. All of these blessings came because he trusted in the Lord. And as he says in chapter 20, I did not trust in chariots or horses. I trusted in the Lord. And through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. I trusted God's mercy, not my brilliance. I trusted the Lord, not horses and chariots. I trusted the Lord and his mercy, not my military genius. That's what he's saying. And as a result, I shall not be moved. Now I'm stable, secure, safe. I've learned to trust the Lord, and therefore I'm stable. The New Testament makes a big deal out of stability. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. The Bible prays that you might be established. Stability. You need spiritual stability. James talks about being a double-minded man. You trust the Lord one minute and you're worried to death the next. Stability is explained in this passage. I trusted the Lord, therefore I shall not be moved. I have spiritual stability as well as security and safety. Now, at the beginning I ask you, have you won any battles lately? You have? Did you trust the Lord to win them? Can you think of one? This is very important for what's coming up in a minute. You got something you can think about? How many of you can think about 
something that happened in the past year in which you trusted the Lord and you won. Raise your hand. All right? You got it? You got it firmly in mind. All right, I decided I should practice what I preach. So I thought down, well, what have I got? I'm going to share three things with you, two of which you know about, and that's the reason I'm going to use them. The third one you don't know about, but it's connected to the first one. Do you remember me telling you about I wanted to go to a seminar and I had an episode of AFib where my heart was out of rhythm and I ended up in the emergency room and all they have to do is zap it back and I can keep, but, but it, I had all kinds of complications and then it got back and I almost missed the plane. Do you remember me telling you that story? And I laid there and said, Lord, I'm going to give you this seminar. Boom. And he let me go. So that's just one illustration of me. I trusted the Lord. I won that one. By the way, the second one you don't know about, I've had two or three of these episodes. It's very common. Lots of people have it. I even knew a man once that they couldn't get it back in rhythm, and he walked around with it for years and got killed in an automobile accident. But um, uh, there is a procedure that they can do that permanently solves this in 80% of the cases in some cases. So what you don't know is that I had the procedure. I mean, they zapped me. It was like, they just put me in, did the procedure, and I walked out. I mean, you know, and they kept me overnight to make sure I was breathing. And um, the doctor said, it was UCLA doctor, that's all he does all day long. He said, this is the easiest one I've ever done. And there, was no, there were no complications in it. He's confident that I'll never have this problem again. He's 80% sure. Now, doctors will never tell you 100% about anything, right? That's to protect themselves. But uh, apparently, that problem got, praise God. Uh, I don't have to worry about missing any more seminars. The third one, you all know about because it happened to me recently, and I've told you about it, is the Lord apparently decided that I needed another car. This was the furthest thing from my mind. And some lady rear-ended me, and lo and behold, wow, did I get a deal. No credit to me, just the Lord decided I needed a new car. Now, have you got stuff like that? I'm just trying to prime your pump. You got stuff like that? All right. This is the last day of the new year. New Year's Eve. Aren't you glad you're not in New York City? <laughs> Watch the ball drop from TV. You can do it at 9 o'clock because it's three hours behind them, all right? Now, what do you normally do on the end of the year? You make New Year's resolutions, right? I hate to hesitate to do this. How many of you have made New Year's resolutions? Ah, some of you already made New Year's Oh, good. Interesting. Uh, matter of fact, I have one or two in mind. You know the problem is that the vast majority of people who make New Year's resolutions break them in January. You do know that. All right. I want to make a suggestion 
that doesn't exactly have to do with a New Year's resolution. I want to change your attitude toward the next year. And that's what the rest of this psalm is about. I told you a minute ago that the first seven verses, David is speaking in the third person. In the next couple of verses, the people respond. In chapter 20, the people were praying for David. And now they respond to David's victory. And what they say is really fascinating. Look at verse 8. Your hand will find your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Wow. Instead of talking about the battle that David just won, the people respond saying, Wow, if you won that one, then what's going to happen in the future? Notice the word shall in this passage. Your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. You shall make them as a fiery furnace or fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath. The fire shall devour them. It's all future. In the context of this psalm, David, the people are saying, now that David trusted the Lord and won a victory in the past, wow, the Lord is on his side. And the Lord will strengthen him and bless him and destroy his enemy in the future. Now, he says in these verses, your hand, which is a metaphor for your power, will find your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you, and you're going to destroy them. But actually, it's going to be the Lord who destroys them. And that's the point of verse 9. Now, 8 and 9 are talking about David's enemies being destroyed. 10 says, their offspring, the offspring of David's enemies, you shall destroy from the earth and their descendants from among the sons of men. For the reason they're going to be destroyed is they intended evil against you. They devised a plot which they were not able to perform. So he's saying in verses 8 and 9, David is going to destroy his enemies, and he's saying in 10 and 11, he's going to destroy the descendants of his enemies. He's going to have a complete victory in the future. So verse 12 says, Therefore you will make them uh, turn their back. In other words, they're going to retreat. And he says, You will make ready your arrows on the string toward their faces. And all of which is to say, You are going to defeat them. But again, the point is that the Lord is going to give David victory in the future. Now, I've asked you to think about some victory you've had in the past year. You got that? 
That should give you confidence that if you trust the Lord, you will have victory in the next year. So it's not a New Year's resolution. It's a New Year's new attitude. That maybe when you come to the end of a year, instead of just looking forward and making resolutions, you should start by looking back at the blessings of God. Count your blessings. See what God has done. And then you look forward to the future and say, because of what God has done, I shall not be moved. That kind of a spiritual exercise will give you spiritual stability when you recognize that God has worked in your life and that the Lord has blessed you. It'll give you a sense of security and safety and stability in your relationship to the Lord. And that's what's going on in this passage. The last verse says um, that, Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. We will sing and praise your power. Now notice what it says. We will sing. We will sing. They're going to praise the Lord in the future with song. Now, very frankly, this is a truth that has really come home to me in the last year or two. And that is, the Bible makes an issue out of the fact that we should be praising the Lord by singing that singing ought to be directed to the Lord. As a matter of fact, that is clearly stated in Ephesians and in Colossians, that we should praise the Lord by singing. But it is all through the Psalms that our music and our singing should be to the Lord. Like this morning we sang, Great is thy faithfulness. That's addressed to the Lord. It's praising Him for His faithfulness. So we've tried to incorporate into the song service more songs that are praising God because that is as biblical as it gets. As a matter of fact, if you look at church history, that's the way it's been most of church history. But uh, about a little over 100 years ago, Fanny Crosby started writing hymns of testimony. And so the church went through a period of about 100 years where a lot of the songs that we grew up with were songs of testimony. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And we started singing about us. And in the latter part of the 20th century, the shift went back to let's praise the Lord. And I'm more and more convinced from reading the scripture that we should praise the Lord in the songs that we sing, that the songs that we sing should be songs of praise to the Lord. And by the way, that's one of the reasons you should come to church on time. Right? Why do you come to church? So you can get a blessing? Not a, not a bad idea. 
A better idea is that you could come to church to bless somebody else. That's very biblical. Read 1 Corinthians 14. Everything should be done for edification. And then ultimately, we should come to church for the Lord. Now, I'm going to tell you, if we as a church made a New Year's resolution, that ought to be it. Matter of fact, is there a motion? Is there a second? That we all come to church on time to praise the Lord? If we pick songs of praise, will you show up? I've got Bible for this. And I have to confess, I didn't plan to say this. It just came out. But seriously, we should praise the Lord in song. Amen? Amen and amen. All right. This passage is really fascinating to me. I did not choose it because it was New Year's Eve. Matter of fact, I've made a practice in when I've, I usually preach through a series like a book, and then before I get to another series, I preach a psalm or two. I wish I'd done this more through my ministry than I have. And I've picked psalms throughout the Psalter, but of late, I've just picked the next one. And I just picked the next one. And it happened to be Psalm 21. And as I sat down and studied it, I thought, wow, this is a great New Year's Eve message. Because what David is saying and the people are saying is, if you trust the Lord and you see that you've won battles in the past, that ought to give you the stability and the strength, a changed attitude to be confident the Lord is going to bless you in the future. So it's that attitude I want you to think about in the next year. An attitude of I'm confident the Lord's working in my life and I am going to praise him. Parenthesis. In song by getting to church on time. <laughs> All right. When your battle is won, what should you do? Acknowledge the victory was from the Lord and anticipate future victories and future praise of the Lord. That sums it up. Acknowledge that it was from the Lord and anticipate there's going to be more like it in the future for which you can praise the Lord in song. Got it? Will you do it? It's an attitude. All right. That's what we need to do. Now, let me close by making a couple of very simple observations. At the bottom of all of this is verse 7. The king trusts the Lord. The key to winning the battle in the first place is trusting the Lord. So we need to trust him, not our smarts or our power, but his power and his mercy. That's what he says in this passage. That's the key to victory. Learn to trust the Lord. The second observation is one I just made, and that is that the victories of the past should make us anticipate victories in the future. So, we should anticipate 
praising the Lord. I tell you, I think we don't praise the Lord enough. Do you agree? I think it would change our life if we just became more grateful. Amen? If you just replace the murmuring and complaining with gratitude and praise, would that change your life? And the members of your family said, yes, and it would change ours too. (laughs) Amen? And here's the sad story. The truth is, we don't praise the Lord enough. I'm going to tell you a little secret. There are websites that preachers can go to to find stuff to preach. Uh, Computer is a wonderful little instrument. used to have a library of, at one point in my life, I had a library of 3,000 books. I sold most of them. I still have quite the little theological library. And now I've discovered I don't need it. Most of, I still use it, I still have it, but most of the stuff you can find online. So there is a website that claims to be the largest website in the world for helping preachers prepare sermons. They, um, what they do is they have preachers contribute sermons. So I can put in Psalm 21 and 30 sermons will pop up. Or 130, uh, uh, less well-known passage, maybe less. I think in Psalm 21 it was six. And so every once in a while, just out of curiosity, I go see what other preachers do with the passage. And very frankly, I have been very disappointed. So I don't go to that site or many others very often. But every once in a while, just for kicks, I just say, well, uh, what did they say? You know, just go... See what the competition is doing, so to speak. <laughs> well, I did that this week, and here's what I did. I typed in praising God on the largest website in the world for helping preachers prepare sermons. I typed it in. I'd already prepared the sermon. I just saw maybe I missed something. So I typed it in. Here's the message I got back. It doesn't look like we found any result. Try changing your filter selection or keyword. And I sat back in my chair and I thought, that is exactly right. We don't praise the Lord enough, and we preachers don't preach on praising the Lord enough, apparently. Amen? Maybe that should be our New Year's resolution. It should surely be our New Year's new attitude. Let me tell you what we do do. Do you pray when you get in a battle? Absolutely. Called foxhole religion. I mean, after you try everything else and nothing works, then you pray. All right, that's good. You know, if you've got to wait till. A problem comes, well, the Lord will see to it that you get some more. Right? That's okay. That's okay. Here's the problem. Then what do you do after he answers and gives you the victory? 
Do you praise the Lord? Sometimes. The Lord healed ten lepers and only one came back and said thank you. Where are the nine? Let me tell you what we do. And I'll tell it to you by telling you a story. A man and his three-year-old daughter were visiting a neighbor. The little girl spotted some bananas on the table, and the lady of the house gave her one. The father said to the little girl, What do you say to the nice lady? The little girl looked at the banana, thrust it forward to the lady, and said, Peel it. I submit to you, that's what we do. When we get in a jam, we pray. And when the Lord answers, what do we do? Ask him for something else. And I would like to suggest that sandwiched between your prayer requests should be praise. Amen? Amen. Father, we praise you for your goodness, for your grace, for your mercy, for your faithfulness. And Lord, we confess, we don't acknowledge you enough or praise you sufficiently. So may the Spirit of God indelibly impress upon our minds, not just today, but for the rest of the coming year, that we need to praise you because you're worthy of praise. In Jesus' name, amen.